Well, that's the foghorn. It must mean that it's time for the Cavus Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, a discussion with one of Britain's leading naval correspondents about the Royal Navy's new Queen Elizabeth class carriers, the first of which is now leading an international task group on a historic deployment to the Indo-Pacific region. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. On July 19th, the Russian frigate Admiral Gorshkov successfully test-fired the Zircon hypersonic missile against the surface target in the Barents Sea. The missile traveled over 350 kilometers, about 220 miles, reached a speed of Mach 7, nearly 5,400 miles per hour. Russia is leading in the development of hypersonic weapons and is testing avant-garde hypersonic glide vehicles and the air-launched Kinzhal, or Dagger, missiles, in addition to the Zircon. By contrast, the U.S. Navy is planning to begin testing a yet-to-be-named hypersonic weapon at sea in 2025 aboard the destroyer Zumwalt. The Iranian Navy's sea-based ship Makran and light frigate Sahand entered the Baltic Sea July 22nd, headed for St. Petersburg to take part in Russian Navy Day celebrations. It appears to be the first time Iranian naval ships have operated in the Baltic Sea. The two ships left Iran's Bandar Abbas naval base in May, purportedly headed for Venezuela, with the Makran carrying at least seven high-speed fast attack craft for delivery. But the ships never crossed the Atlantic and instead have moved slowly up the African West Coast to head for Russia. British Defense Minister Ben Wallace announced on July 20th that the patrol ships Spey and Tamar will permanently deploy in August to the Indo-Pacific region, but noted the ships would not have a permanent base. Wallace made the remarks while visiting Tokyo in anticipation of the carrier Queen Elizabeth's upcoming visit. In the U.S., the carrier Dwight D. Eisenhower returned to her home port of Norfolk July 18th after completing back-to-back deployments. On the West Coast, carrier Theodore Roosevelt arrived in Bremerton, Washington on July 22nd. The ships will enter the naval shipyards at Norfolk and Puget Sound to begin major year-long overhauls. In San Diego, the fleet oiler John Lewis was christened at General Dynamics NASCO's shipyard on July 17th. The ship is the first of a new class of oiler for the U.S. Navy that will be operated by the Military Sealift Command. The Navy hopes to buy 20 of the ships by the time the program is complete. John Lewis is expected to enter service in 2022. And finally, in Washington, the fiscal year 2022 budget continues to work its way through Capitol Hill. The Senate Armed Services Committee, in its markup of the defense bill on July 22nd, added more than $25 billion to the Pentagon's budget request. The ads include a second Flight 3 destroyer, another expeditionary fast transport, and five more F-35C carrier variants of the Joint Strike Fighter. The final appropriation and authorization bills, however, are still some ways off from being decided. That's a look at our worldwide naval news. Now it's time for our interview segment. Britain's aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth left Portsmouth, England in May to begin a major deployment at the center of what is dubbed Carrier Strike Group 21. Years in the making, the cruise will take the first full-deck British aircraft carrier since the 1970s into the Pacific Ocean. HMS Queen Liz, as she's known, represents an incredible investment on the part of the United Kingdom. It's hard to pin down the full cost. 
Not just did the ship and her sister ship, HMS Prince of Wales, need to be designed and built, but an entire industry needed to be rekindled to produce the biggest warships the Royal Navy has ever had. Crews needed to be trained in aircraft found, in this case, U.S.-built Lockheed Martin F-35B Joint Strike Fighters. Ships needed to be designed and built to defend and escort the carriers, resulting in the six Type 45 Daring class destroyers. New infrastructure needed, needed to be found to support all this that was needed. Even a new dry dock had to be built to handle the ships. In the process, the Royal Navy arguably has switched from the largely anti-submarine air defense force of the 1970s and the Cold War back to a more power projection role, all in an effort to reinforce Britain's role in the world. With us today is Richard Scott, a longtime naval journalist based in the UK, who has covered the Queen Elizabeth program from its inception. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Chris. Great to be here. And it's great to have you. What do you see when you look at the Royal Navy's new aircraft carriers? I think from my perspective, having been around in this business for coming on for 30 years, it's very symbolic of a, a, a total transformation. And, and, and as you say, coming out uh, of the Cold War, you had a Royal Navy that was very, very much focused on the uh, ASW mission in, in the NATO arena, in, in the North Atlantic, in the GI-UK gap. Um, what we see now with CSG 21 is a Navy far more focused on the power projection mission. And of course, it comes at a very important time for the UK in terms of its, its foreign policy. It's, it's left the EU, it's accomplished Brexit, and we now see a tilt to the Indo-Pacific uh, coming through in the latest um, integrated review of, of foreign and defence policy. And the fact that CSG 21 is, is going into the Indo-Pacific at the, the current time is, is emblematic of that. You know, there's, there's a, an incredibly heavy, this isn't just a British task group that's out there. It is an international task group. We have a U.S. destroyer in, in the group. We have a, 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 a Dutch frigate. Half of the air wing on Queen Elizabeth is, is uh, provided by the U.S. Marine Corps. Um, the, the ship exercise with the French Charles de Gaulle in the Mediterranean. They've been having a whole series of international ships come out and exercise with them. So far, the Japanese, uh, the Italians, the, the Indians, among others. And there's many more to come. Thailand, Korea, Japan, Australia, Japan again, and Australia, had, among others. I mean, this, this is a scale of international involvement for the UN, the, the RN, the Royal Navy, that we haven't seen for many, many years. How does that strike you? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And I think that's something that the senior leadership in the Navy have been very keen to press home, that they want to uh, get out there, engage, exercise with uh, allied navies, with, uh, with regional partners. Um, and they really want to test themselves, but also demonstrate to allies and partners what, what they can bring in terms of um, their, their, their abilities with the strike group. Um, and also, again, coming back to the, the political message that the UK is, is sending to the Indo-Pacific, that it, uh, it, it sees itself as a, as a force to support you know, stability and good order in the region. So go, go back to how this project began. 
and it, it, it's garnered pretty much bipartisan support throughout, conservative and liberal. It was a very long program. It took a long time it was fin- to, 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 to carry out. Phenomenally expensive. And yet, yet it actually got done. I, I mean, yeah, how- it's, it, it's a long story, Chris. And, and, and again, I mean, I, I, I still recall talking to the first desk officer in Ministry of Defence main building. Uh, who took up his desk in the uh, the, the fall of um, of 1994, um, and was asked to go and write a a case for the Navy to replace the three Invincible class carriers and their Sea Harrier air groups, and I think probably at the time he was given a fairly low uh, probability of success, but actually during the 1990s, with the conflicts in the the, the Balkans very foremost in mind what you did see was the UK as a whole, but particularly the Royal Navy, trying to reorientate itself uh, for a power projection role. And the utility of the carrier actually really was was borne out by operations um, uh, from the Adriatic and and going into former Republic of Yugoslavia. And when it came to the uh, the 1998 uh, Strategic Defence Review, the idea of two new, um, somewhat larger carriers was enshrined by the then new Labour government, and um, th- that really cast the cast the die for what we see in front of us today. Now, well, what I would also say, of course, is that whilst the carrier program has uh, survived several uh, changes of government, different shades of government, several defence reviews. It's certainly not been without its own controversies. Uh, there has been some vehement op- opposition at various times from both of the other armed forces um, and from within the, um, the institution that is the Ministry of Defence. Um, but nonetheless, the programme has, um, it's been buffeted, but ultimately it has come through um, in, in largely in the form that it was originally planned. These ships, there was there, there were there wasn't even a shipyard that could build the ships. Uh, that's right. Yeah, I mean what that that's a that's a uh, a reflection really of the um, the the industrial enterprise in the UK that in the late nineties when the designs and the first sketches were being produced uh, under what was then called the CVF project, it was fairly quickly realised that the sort of size of ship that the UK was thinking about, and that was initially in the realm of about 40,000 tonnes, was beyond the uh, capability and the capacity of of any single shipyard in the UK. So as a result of that, we we saw the development of a a modular shipbuilding strategy that eventually saw uh, the two ships, Queen Elizabeth, Prince of Wales, assembled from a, a number of different mega blocks that were produced at yards around the UK, uh, brought together then finally in, in Recife in Scotland for their final consolidation and integration. Now, w- one of the problems with reconstituting that industrial capability at great expense and great effort is that now you've built the two ships, what do you do with it? It's an awful lot of investment. What's the, what, what does the future hold for the present future hold for these facilities? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great point, Chris. Um, and, and it comes back down to 
how much of a strategy there is for naval shipbuilding in the UK and how much in the past perhaps uh, there has been a very much a more market-oriented approach um, with, with less intervention from the Ministry of Defence and, and UK government as a whole. What we've seen really in the last three years is that I think there is a reflection uh, and an understanding now that there does need to be a, a stronger hand on the tiller from government in term, terms of guiding shipbuilding strategy. Um, but, but certainly there have been cases well, well, well made that the uh, new fleet solid support ships, uh, three of which are intended to provide support to the new carrier strike groups. Um, there is a strong argument to say that they really should have been the immediate follow-ons to two carriers to make use of the learning and the economies that uh, had been um, achieved through their design and build. Um, as it stands, that programme itself is going to go out to a competitive tender. So it's not clear at this stage um, who will build those ships uh, and in which facilities. It's sort of interesting right now that well, so the Royal Navy has four major programs, and I, I'm sure more, but uh, you've, you've, got the, you've got two new frigate programs, Type 26, Type 31. You have the new dreadnought class ballistic missile submarines under construction, and now you have these support ships, the fleet support ships. Um, so there's there's a pretty robust reconstitution of the Royal Navy going on. Uh, but does that it is is Britain's shipbuilding industry back? Is it here to stay? Does it is it is it still pretty fragile? What would you say about that? Yeah, I, I'd say it's in a state of transition at the moment, Chris. Um, and as you say, in terms of the, the submarine loading, you have uh, the submarine facility, BA systems in Barrow. It's finishing off the sixth and seventh astute class SSNs. It then has the four new dreadnought, dreadnought class uh, SSBNs, uh, which will see it through uh, the 2030s. And there's already uh, plans afoot for a um, SSN replacement um, to come online in the in the 2040s. So, the submarine enterprise, in terms of the pipeline, uh, I, I think there's a there's a good horizon there. Type 26 is going on at BA Systems on the Clyde. So, in terms of the the really complex side of warship building there. Uh, that program again will will go through into the mid 2030s. Babcock now has the contract for Type 31, a new low-cost general-purpose frigate. That's five ships that are likely to be all in service by the end of this decade. Um, where there is still some uncertainty is the strategy that's going to be brought forward for the future fleet solid support ship. Uh, there's many calls from unions, from parts of industry that, again, uh, that would make sense to move to more of an alliancing, contracting um, uh, model where the MOD would work with a consortium of UK industry to develop the design, the engineering, and then parcel out the shipbuilding across the various yards in the UK in, in, a, in a very uh, strategic way to try and really give a, a new impetus, a new kickstart to UK shipbuilding. 
Um, at the moment, the UK MOD's approach to this is to run a competition, albeit with the mandate that the majority of the ship should be built and integrated within the UK. Uh, however, at this point, it does not by any means exclude the participation of, of foreign shipyards. And those foreign shipyards provide design expertise, but they could also end up uh, building large sections of the ship themselves overseas, albeit those ships would eventually have to be integrated uh, in a UK facility. So it's the, uh, back to the Queen Elizabeth herself. So she began initial sea trials just about a little over four years ago. And now she's out on deployment. The, uh, of course, the, the, the American contemporary of this is the Gerald Ford, which was commissioned four years ago and has yet to deploy for quite a number of reasons and still, still, not, still not fully operational, scheduled now to go out next year. Uh, it's sort of interesting that even, even with all the new technologies that are in the Ford, that is a story that's well known about why this has taken so long. Uh, the British managed to put these ships together and get them out pretty fast, faster than I think a lot of people expected. Um, both, both ships were at sea and running as opposed to staying in port forever and ever and ever. Um, and it's, it's, is, there, is there a contrast to how the US Navy commissions its ships and how the Royal Navy has put this stuff to sea? It's just... Uh, uh yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I would quite, you know, want to do that like-for-like like com comparison, um, Chris. I, I think, you know, that because there's there's so much more complexity, I think, in what the Ford class is, has been designed and what it's trying to achieve. And in terms of the number of, um, you know, untested and, and innovative technologies that are in there. And I would say as well that the both uh, Queen Elizabeth class uh, construction program did experience its its own delays. Um, some of that was financially um, inspired. It, it, there was some uh, savings made in 2009, which meant the program had to be stretched out. And there were some uh, technical and integration problems towards the, um, the end of the outfitting and, and test phase, which again, impacted the program. What I think I probably would say was that what really allowed the Royal Navy to hit the ground running when it did get the ships into its hands was the prep that it had done uh, between 2010 and 2017. And it's particularly the relationship that was forged with the US Navy uh, under the, uh, the carrier statement of intent. Uh, and that was fundamental to the ability of the Royal Navy to actually regenerate and uh, take forward those really key skills in terms of, of, of deck management, uh, in terms of command and control, in terms of the way it's actually built up a strike group construct. Um, that simply couldn't have happened in the timescales that were achieved without the huge support of, of the US Navy in that endeavor. Richard, in the, uh, this is Chris Cervello again. Thanks for, for joining us. In, in the time that we have left, I've got three uh, questions. The, the first one is kind of piggybacking on that timing piece that you and Chris just talked about. Is this the right ship at the right time? Or is it a case of um, you know, fielding uh, technology for the last conflict? You mentioned that it was born out of the, um, the conflict in the Balkans. I mean, is this a great power 
uh, ship? Or is this a case of, as we have made the same mistake on this side of the pond, where, you know, it takes so long to field the technology that you kind of are left with something that would have been better suited for, you know, the decade prior, and now you're finding a way to employ it uh, with the conflicts that you envision for the future. How, how does that timing fit into these, uh, these decisions? Chris, that is a, that is a great question. Um, and it's, and it's a, a source of, of, I think, continuing debate because the world for which uh, what was the CVF program and its, and its air wing were originally designed um, in that sort of power projection role was, was, was a world that we lived in, you know, perhaps 15 years ago before we saw the, the re-emergence of, of, of peer competitors uh, and near-peer competitors in the mold of China and Russia. So I think that's a, a, it's, it's a point well made. Um, I, I think also some of the, the um, you know, delays that we've seen um, and the, the cost escalation we've seen around the, uh, the F-35 program has also uh, proved you know, a real uh, challenge for the UK uh, to, to to bear those costs. Um, you know, the, the F thirty five was obviously conceived as a uh, as a as, you know originally as a as an affordable um, you know carrier capable uh, stealth fighter, and I think um, with the best will, um, you know, it's certainly not looking affordable, particularly for the UK at the moment in terms of both its procurement cost. Uh, and it's perhaps more importantly, it's, it's through life sustainability. And that's a concern. Um, the UK currently has a commitment to buy 48. Um, it intends to buy some more above that. But it's been made quite clear recently by Secretary of State Ben Wallace that he wants to see real progress in pricing of cost of ownership before he's prepared to, to commit to more. Um, but to come back to, to your other you know, you know, points there, it's relevance. I think from the Navy's perspective, yes, it does still see that this is a hugely relevant capability um, for the Navy and not just the carrier itself, but that whole concept of, of the strike group um, going forward. And what, what it also sees is the carriers as a springboard to a, a new hybrid uh, maritime aviation force as well where the intention being that over the next decade or so that you'll see some capabilities that are currently manned uh, in, in the air group migrating into um, uncrewed air vehicles. Uh, the, the obvious one and the start point is, is looking perhaps at a um, airborne early warning, airborne, airborne surveillance and control platform, which would be based on a UAV. Uh, which would um, replace the current crow's nest system, which would free up more Merlin helicopters to do ASW, which has always been very much their, their primary task. Yeah, as an observer on this side, you look at what's happening and you, I think you're torn. On one hand, you wonder, as I said, you know, are, um, is the Royal Navy late to the carrier party? Or on the other hand, are they actually are we going to learn from them, you know, with smaller carriers, how they're going to employ uh, the F-35s, the, the move to unmanned. So it, it, you kind of see it on, on both sides. So it'll be interesting uh, to watch how, um, you know, the lessons that, that, that you all learn through that process and, you know, how our partnership uh, kind of grows uh, together. Um, switching gears, 
How about the employment model or the deployment model, right? I mean, the good news is, is that, you, you know, you, you have two carriers. In some cases in naval circles, the bad news is now you have two carriers and you have to, uh, you have to maintain them. You have to, you know, figure out how to deploy them. You know, we've been stuck where it, in, in our Navy where it takes three to four carriers to make one uh, ready carrier. Um, has there been discussion about what kind of the long-term uh, deployment model will be for these two carriers? Well, the intention is at the moment, Chris, to always maintain one at a, at a high level of operational readiness. Um, the, the, the actual way that is going to work out in practice, I th still think is being worked through. But, you know, what, what you're seeing this year is that uh, while Queen Elizabeth is, is out doing CSG 21, Prince of Wales is um, commencing her workup. She started to do her aviation trials. And I think over the next 24 months, we'll start to see that that pattern of that, that operational cycle really start to, to bed down. Um, and, and that will lead through into 2023, where it's currently planned that there'll be another big um, uh, exercise and deployment, which is looking for the first time to take an air group of 24 aircraft to sea. Uh, and that's very much seen as a, as a, as a graduation test um for carrier strike to get up to a a full operating capability so that's the i think that's the next big um uh, head mark that the navy's aiming towards so now the ship is uh queen elizabeth is in the as we speak in the indian ocean um headed east for the pacific and she'll operate there for the next few months uh the, this is uh if nothing else a signal to china Again, ironic that you know, a program that was born of a, of a program in the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s is now being used for a much larger, far larger strategy, grand strategy in the Pacific. Uh, the rise of China was not something that people were foreseeing at this level 25 years ago. But it's a major statement. It, this deployment falls shortly after a significant effort by France that sent an, an assault ship, a frigate, and a attack submarine out operating in the Pacific for a few months uh, recently. That also clearly bothered the Chinese. Uh, their, their public reaction was much more pointed than it has been in the past. And the, and the rhetoric is rising. And now we have a full-blown full task group centered by an entirely new aircraft carrier. The um, United Kingdom has just announced they're gonna, they're gonna start stationing two surface warships out in the far Pacific. They have an ongoing presence in the fifth, operating with our fifth fleet in uh, the Persian Gulf. So even as the, the Navy is incredibly stretched, largely because of the cost, they've had to draw down because of the cost of this task group, and yet now with the task group, they're expanding their operations worldwide, tasking them even more. Do you think that is the Royal Navy starting to overstretch itself or is are they flexing new muscles? Which way, which way is that going or a little both? I, I think the first thing to bear in mind, Chris, that CSG 21 you know, in itself, um, it's been long in the planning, but it's, it's something of an episodic um deployment i don't think we will see it's like again for for you know for the immediate future this won't be something that's being done necessarily routinely 
Um, you know, th this is making an important statement for the UK, not just in a, in a military sense, but also very much in a, in a politi political one. It's, it's very symbolic in, in that um, regard. I think, however, you're absolutely right to, to, to look at the, you know, this, this tilt to the Indo-Pacific that the UK is taking and the, and the RN uh, is, is absolutely part of that. As you mentioned, we've got HMS Tamar and HMS Spey are going to be permanently deployed in the Indo-Pacific um, from later this year. And there's also a commitment for the UK to base a little response group uh, in the Indian Ocean. I think that's due from 2023. So certainly one of the uh, big pushes is to have not, not just a regional engagement, actually have a regional presence and actually have forces um, deployed in theatre um, supported in theatre, um, understanding the neighbourhood that they're in. Now, coming back to your, your first point, you know, how, how stretched does this leave the Navy? And, and you're right. I mean, the, the programming at the moment for the Royal Navy is exceptionally taut. The goal of, of, of the fleet planners really is to look at how best they can, they can pulse forces, look at how best um, they can respond to the emergent demands which, which uh, they're inevitably going, inevitably going to face uh, from all parts of the world um, and from, from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, from allies and partners. One of the ways they're doing that now, obviously, is in terms of forward basing. So there's already Type 23 based in Bahrain, uh, offshore patrol vessels now in the South Atlantic, uh, a permanent offshore patrol vessel in the Caribbean and another one in the Med. And then looking forward, you've got Type 31 coming along and the intention uh, for the operating model there again is going to be having Type 31s forward deployed around the world. So they are very much operating there as, as uh, uh, alongside other you know, regional allies and partners. Um, that said, I think there's no disguising uh, that you know the, the navy's going to be down by the end of next year to 17 frigates and destroyers there's an acknowledgement i think across the mod across government across the navy that that's just not enough so there is a plan to start driving ship numbers up again um talk of getting up to 24 frigates and destroyers by the early 2030s uh there's a program called type 32 is already in the concept phase as a follow-on to type 31 uh, and again, like the US Navy, the UK is also looking at how it may uh, seek to augment crewed ships with uncrewed forces as well, looking at USVs and uh, greater use of autonomy. So I think that's seen as a potentially another way to ease the stretch, but it, but it won't be easy. Folks, our uh, guest today has been veteran uh, naval correspondent Richard Scott based in the United Kingdom. Richard, this has been incredibly interesting and fascinating. I'm so happy we had had you on, and, and you were on, you agreed to come on, and uh, talk about this uh, really great topic. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure. Now hear this. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right, all right. Now it's hear this. It's time for Squawk Box. Shipbuilding, by its nature, takes a very long time during which any number of design changes can be made or contemplated.
Dealing with those changes is the bane of any ship construction program manager, and there are any number of new ship classes caught in the whirlpool of too many changes that, among other things, cause schedule delays and add cost. Possibly the worst recent example was the San Antonio LPG-17 class of amphibious ships in the early 2000s, where an ongoing torrent of changes coming down from Naval Sea Systems Command caused chaos in the Northrop Grumman Ingalls Shipbuilding Yard in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Even as NAVC continued to make changes requiring at times serious rework, the Navy pressured the yard to make up the delays and get back on schedule. The result was a fiasco, where the ship wound up being delivered incomplete and in relatively poor condition simply to get it away from the shipyard and put a cork on the endless changes. Worries about a redux in that situation still pressure the Navy, working now on building the new Constellation class frigates. In an interview with the U.S. Navy League earlier this week, Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Mike Gilday declared, when you lock in a design, you lock in a design. When we start building the frigate, we're not looking at adding any new systems to that ship. The delivery of the frigate needs to be the Navy SpaceX. It needs to come out right on time within its budget and with everything working right. Well, you might want to rethink that statement, CNO. It's not a question of locking in a design, which is standard merchant ship practice dealing with relatively simpler ships. Warships are far more complex. The variety of radars and sonars and electronic gear and hardware and software that make up a modern ship's combat system are subject to endless updating as technology evolves. Requirements for equipment can change from weapons to damage control. Change is inevitable. A fundamental key to war warship construction then is not to lock in a design and deliver a ship three or four years later that is already outdated. It's to build in the capacity and ability to handle those changes. That takes skill and even a form of artistry. It is not an exact science. But adaptability to deal with reasonable changes and upgrades is a key to building warships pretty much on time and within budget. All right. Well, that does it for this week. Uh, as always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian for his support, as well as to the Finkenterry Marine Group and Huntington Ingalls Industries for their continued support of the defense and aerospace effort. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>